0: Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to the American Reformer Podcast. I'm Ben Dunson, the Editor-in-Chief Of American Reformer and with me today again is my co-host Josh Abitoy who is the executive director of American Reformer. Uh, This week we are going to talk about the, I guess I should say, possible arrest of Donald Trump. Um, It seems to be somewhat unclear whether that is actually going to happen. Um, you'll have to count me as uh, suspicious that it actually will, considering the number of times I've heard that he was going to be arrested and that his arrest was imminent. So I guess I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, but we're going to get into some interesting uh, interesting issues really um, that have to do with um, extradition um, and uh, the, the Constitution. You may have seen Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis' press conference, um, I think that was yesterday, which um, uh, he was asked about Trump's case, and and he gave um, at least some comment on that. And uh, there's been quite a bit of uh, back and forth about how he responded, um, I think especially among Republicans. And uh, it, it brought up issues of the Constitution, people chiming in, um, saying that uh, the Constitution requires that if, if a prosecutor in New York seeks extradition um, of someone like President Trump in Florida, that they, they have to comply in Florida. Others have been saying that that's not the case. Thankfully, our executive director is also a lawyer, so he's going to be able to help us navigate this and, and understand extradition and, and the Constitution. It brings up issues about rule of law, and uh, and and the limits to rule of law even whether or not uh, rule of law as a as a basic idea could be twisted could be perverted um could actually be used to to um try to promote uh, or protect evil and this brings up issues of of prosecution lawless prosecutors um and uh, and many similar ideas like this so to get this started josh uh can you tell us the the basics of this case
0: sure uh yeah you know donald president donald trump announced uh late last week that he expected to be arrested actually today uh, as of recording it we're recording on tuesday march 21st Um, unclear that hasn't happened yet um unclear if it's going to happen so we need to preface all of what we say with that Um, But the the grounds for the arrest relate back to um, a settlement that the Trump campaign made with uh, Stormy Daniels and her lawyer, Michael Avenatti, who, if folks recall, uh, Stormy Daniels was a um, adult uh, film actress who accused Trump of uh, uh, sexual impropriety. And uh, at some point, the campaign uh, settled with her, and, and my understanding is paid money out of its own coffers for that settlement, um, being characterized as hush money. And and the um, there's sort of two questions here. There's one question, which is, did the campaign, as a legal entity, violate campaign laws? And uh, you know, if it did, uh, there would be you know, typically that, that, you know, that's a that's a civil matter and there's going to be certain monetary fines associated with it and all the rest. And that happens, Not it's not uncommon for um, campaigns to cross the line and get a slap on the wrist uh, in, the, in the form of a monetary fine. Um, but the, there's a, a higher hurdle to meet and the, the question gets a lot more fraught when you try to move past that to the question of, is the candidate involved in the campaign personally liable in a way that requires them to go to jail for, for what they did. Um, and the, you know, the, uh, apparent intent of the DA in this case to charge Trump personally is extremely controversial. Um, I, I was just looking national review, I think called it, uh, you know, despicable. Um, and, uh, you know, even a lot of mainstream outlets are very uh, concerned about, you know, about the uh, this prospect. Uh, reportedly, even the DA's office in, in New York is in um, inner turmoil over this. And, you know, I think we have to put on the table before we get much further, this DA in question, this DA is not some, you know, uh, Inspector Javert character who just insists on strict enforcement of the law in all respects. He's you a know, Soros-backed candidate who is sort of famous for um, extremely lenient sentences on violent criminals. Um, almost all of the felonies brought into his court in the last couple of years have been reduced to misdemeanors at the sentencing stage. This is a guy who um, is very, very soft on violent crime in New York City. So, you know, that that's kind of the background. Um, you know, he's, he's significantly stretching and overreaching for a charge against the former president, while at the same time, um, sort of famous across the nation for his soft on crime policies.
1: Yeah, so this is not someone that uh, is a, a stickler for r- true justice and, and rule of law. It looks like um, a, a good argument could be made that he is... He's dealing with something that um, gets dealt with all the time, as you said, civilly, um, rather than uh, criminally, and uh, is trying to use this to, to score political points. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, that's what, that's what um, has, has uh, brought this in connection with, uh, with Ron DeSantis, because Trump is in Florida, and, um, and um, DeSantis was asked what he's going to do about it. He kind of punted in some ways and said he didn't know all the the details of the case and uh, And he's been criticized at least for for not giving a stronger answer uh, about uh, possibly resisting extradition. Um, now that 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 question of of resisting extradition, I think that sounds at least on the surface kind of shocking to a lot of people, uh, especially those who are who are on the right, who value things like rule of law. Um, they, they hear that, I, I think it was Ben Shapiro who, who just saw that as being a, a cut and dry case where the constitution requires it. And, uh, and that's just, that's it. Um, and so uh, there, there's nothing else to be said about this. Um, DeSantis couldn't resist this in any way, even if he wanted to. Um, is, that, is that true? Is that the case?
0: Yeah. So so yeah, the the issue of extradition bubbled up. Basically, that some critics were dissatisfied with DeSantis's response. I think in in one place he may have said this was a sideshow, and I, I think with some justification, critics have argued. No, you know the problem of uh, Soros-backed DAs who are soft on crime but then very open to these very aggressive politicized investigations. These are one of the. I mean, this this is a major issue for the country, and it's uh, it's one of the drivers of the, the big the the big sort that's going on with uh, a lot of conservatives fleeing cities. It's one of the big drivers behind the severe drop in quality of life in our major cities in the country. Um, so you know, this isn't. Uh, I think it's you know it, it's not a sideshow, and I don't think. Um, a lot of people with some reason are, are a bit dissatisfied with, with Ron DeSantis' response on this point. But but in, in, um, in commenting on it, uh, Matt Walsh at the Daily Wire actually tweeted, not good. You know, DeSantis should vow not to extradite Trump and promise to fight this malicious prosecution. Uh, ben Shapiro then retweeted uh, and says, DeSantis does not have that power. Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution governs here. And I'll just get, for those who don't have the whole thing committed to memory, I'll just go ahead and read that uh, that section. It says, a person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime who shall flee from justice and be found in another state shall on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled be delivered up to be removed to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. Uh, so that's that's the language in the Constitution uh, and a uh, number of questions just on the face of it that sort of naturally occur. You know, one question is, uh, this clause says, um, this clause says a person who shall flee from justice. So, so there's, a, there, there's, there's one line of thought that would say, um, is the person for whom extradition is sought, are they an actual fugitive? did they actually flee from a sentence or, or a prosecution that was handed down or, you know, are they resident of another state have been living there for some time. And then the state in which they used to live, um, concocted a theory of by which they have jurisdiction over this person or, you know, this is litigating conduct that occurred years in the past before this individual moved to a different state. So, so the actual fugitive, uh, uh, construct is, is a very interesting one. And I should say, first of all, barely any of this has been tested in federal courts. So there's very few cases that have interpreted all of the different particularities of um, of the extradition clause of the Constitution. So a lot of this, it's, it's untested. We don't know, right? Um, the, 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 um, the other question that sort of naturally occurs when you read this clause in the Constitution is, well, what happens when states have dueling laws, um, you know, that, that, that clash? So, you know, for example, um, on the case of abortion, if, if, uh, if Texas outlaws abortion and somebody obtains an abortion and then flees to another state, um, California, <clears throat> does anyone actually believe that California is going to extradite that person back to Texas for criminal prosecution? Right. No yeah, way. No, um, that will not be done. Um, it would get litigated, and there's an open question about, um, you know, some some commentators say that there needs to be an element of dual criminality. So, in other words, um, the conduct that is criminal in one state must also be criminal in the state for whom the extradition is being requested. Um, that. That sort of seems right to me. Um, otherwise, if that weren't the rule, um, you know, there would be conflicts of laws all the time between the various states. Um, if, you, if you're going to have states that have meaningfully different laws, it, it almost seems to be necessarily the case that those states have discretion on an extradition in cases where their laws conflict on the substantive behavior underlying. Um, now, you know, a couple that the really, uh, and I don't know how well this augurs for our nation, but the last time that the extradition clause was really an issue at all was with um, respect to fugitive slave cases. Yeah, that's, up to the, that's the what I was thinking. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, so, so the really, I, I think the first really substantive case that, that kind of happened on the extradition line was this case of Kentucky versus Denison. And they um, really kind of a weird ruling. I mean, it's, it's 1961. It's right on the eve of the civil war. And there, the Supreme court ruled that states have no discretion to deny extradition. Um, but, but, and this is a key point, federal courts do not have the ability to compel extradition.
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: so, so it's kind of a weird ruling because it's sort of saying, um, hey, state, you're falling down on your constitutional obligations if you don't extradite, but we're not empowered to force you to do it. Um, it kind of, in some ways, maybe a little bit of a, uh, a kind of a case that, that uh, shows how, how fraught the constitutional issues were at the time and how weak the Supreme Court felt um, to actually impose nation- nationwide rules on the populace. Um, this case was uh, revisited uh, about a hundred years later in a, in a case called Puerto Rico versus Branstead, um, which it basically held that that basic ruling, but it, but it actually did say that federal courts have the right to mandate extraditions between states. So it overruled that aspect of, of Denison, which came down in 1861. Um, sorry for the long discourse, no. But, no. But, it, these are very narrow cases dealing with very particular facts and circumstances that um, th- they don't shed light on sort of the broader questions. And, you know, I think uh, actually leave a ton of questions as we move uh, forward. Um, because, you know, the uh, the the Trump case is a case of, uh, you know, this is a case of one rogue prosecutor who, you know, in my opinion, is just grossly overreaching and engaging in a politicized uh prosecution um but you know we're all we're all kidding ourselves if you know if if this is the only thing that's going to cause extradition clause issues in the coming years uh the the salon uh ran an article um shortly after i'm sorry not salon so slate ran an article shortly after dobbs came down last summer um in which they did a very long uh sort of discourse on the extradition clause and they were sort of envisioning you know what's going to happen when pro life states attempt to extradite um uh folks who've had or you know helped helped perform abortions um and, uh, you know, so their, their eye was on the ball here. They went straight to the uh, legal issues and the lack of clarity in the legal issues and, you know, ultimately said, you know, states should craft legislation that says they don't extradite in cases where there's no dual criminality. Hmm. So, in other words, Slate, you know, and the, the writer there was, was advocating that, you know, California pass a law that says um, – you know, we won't extradite to another state unless it's for a crime that is also a crime um, in our jurisdiction. So, you know, that's a that's a um, somewhat untested proposition. Um, so, you know, uh, all of this to say, when Ben Shapiro says on Twitter, you know, DeSantis does not have the power to deny extradition. Article Four, Section Two of the Constitution governs here. Um, that's a very Uh, he's, he's significantly simplifying a pretty complex debate. Um, And it's also kind of, it's, it's like asking, it's asking a governor to preemptively lay down his power, um, you know, uh, essentially irrespective of the grounds on which extradition is sought. Um, And, and, you know, I would again. I would advocate in coming years. This can't. This cannot be the attitude of red state governors. Um, we are going to have. We are going to have scenarios where red state governors are going to rightly be under significant pressure to deny extradition for certain cases. I, I think back to an article that we ran last fall by Andrew Branch on um, on the. State of California's new laws. Uh, the state of California passed a law that said um, minors uh, can uh, can seek uh, gender uh, transitions without parental consent, and the state can can force that. So the article that we ran um, was was advocating for a new underground railroad of sorts, at which churches are the center, helping you know helping parents get their minors out of the state. It's very easy to imagine a scenario where, um, you know, what maybe one out of two parents who disagrees with the transition uh, travels to Texas with their child, and uh, and the state of California makes an extradition request. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, and uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, it, it, it
1: seems like uh, Slate, the Slate article. Uh, it seems like the state of California, a variety of people on the left. They they recognize I mean, I think wrong wrongly it's it's on the wrong issues, but they they recognize that extradition is not just an absolute uh, a, an absolute issue of of rule of law that 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 it always must be the case. Like what, what Shapiro is saying um, not like to, to defend him, I guess to, to defend what I think he's trying to do is is just be a supporter of rule of law. It seems like that's, that's what's behind that, is, is that we have to be uh, under the law. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting that he, he says that all these people on the left recognize that there would be instances where what they would see as being an injustice is taking place, and so extradition can't be absolute. Um, I mean, the, the issue of runaway slaves, of course, I think almost everyone would recognize that now and, and say, mm-hmm. say, are we, are we going to stand on this principle of extradition and understood in a certain way? Um, so absolutely that we would say that, um, uh, that, that a, a state in which a slave had escaped has a moral duty to return that slave, um, back into slavery. I mean, is that, is that the argument that someone like Shapiro would want to make and, I'm guessing the answer is no so so it seems like most people, if you push them, would recognize that there have to be limits to that um that there are broader issues of justice um and and yeah. example, you brought up with transgender issues that that brings that up as well, and that's that's kind of the 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 conflict that we're facing the difficulty is is um these things are coming up more and more.
0: Every every good conservative lawyer, really any good conservative for the last 30 or 40 years, has been brought up to revere the rule of law. And I don't want it to demean the rule of law. Like, it's, it's, it's great. Um, I, I don't, have you ever seen a, a Man for All Seasons? I don't think so. Okay. So this is like this iconic inspiration for conservative legal people. It's about Sir Thomas More in England. And he's got this famous dialogue um, – with, with another character where he's talking about bending the law to prosecute a political enemy. And uh, the dialogue uh, goes like this. So you'd give the devil the benefit of the law? Sir Thomas More replies, yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? William Roper, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. Sir Thomas More, oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper? The law is all being flat. This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down, you're just the man and you're just the man to do it. Do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes. I'd give the devil the benefit of law for my own safety's sake. Hmm. This is like an, this is an iconic, I I can't tell you how many um, conservative legal books or commentators start their discourses with some sort of reference to this, this quote, you know, the basic idea, I mean, it's it's sort of like religious liberty. Hey, you know, Christians, don't push the advantage of your, majoritar- your majority in a particular state because what if those laws end up getting used against you, right? Like this, this idea of reciprocality, and we all have to agree to be bound by the same rules um, and not bend them when we're in power because uh, that way, you know, that way those rules will still be there for our own protection when our enemies are in power. Um, right you know, this is, and there's, there's a lot of truth in this. I'm not, I'm not despising this whatsoever, but these issues that we're facing, I think, raise the question of, okay, rule of law is a good. It surely is, but it's not, it's not the only good. And what, you know, what do we know to recognize when, um, you know, in Sir Thomas More's language, the, the land is planted thick with laws. Do we know when to recognize that, the the actual laws, the substance of them, is is actually evil, and so the 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 good that can be obtained by disregarding those laws actually outweighs the evil of um, the evil of uh, you know of, of undermining the rule of law to some extent or you know contesting it. Um, yeah. th- this is this is a, I, I just this is a core issue that's dividing a lot of conservatives right now you know, do we, you know, if we're, if, if, if our nation is essentially playing a board game, politics is a board game. And, um, we think that one, you know, that, that, that one of the players is cheating. Um, you know, do we, how, what, what is the response? Do we resort to the rule book and tell them stop cheating? The rules, the rule book says right here, you're not allowed to do that. Um, you know, or, or is it, do we recognize, what's actually going on and then, um, you know, see, seek other remedies. Um, this is, I mean, this is uh, this is tough stuff. I mean, because it is, it is to some degree radical, but it, it's calling for a re- recognition from conservatives that the, I mean, however desirable the rule of law is in theory, we don't, uh, we don't have great rule of law across our country, and if we insist on being bound uh, by certain, by binding ourselves to certain procedural norms and all the rest, um, we make ourselves less less effective and actually allow a great deal of substantive injustice to occur. Yeah, I mean, just imagine imagine uh,
1: living under um, communist Russia. Um, you know, after the sort of the, the revolution has happened, and it's years later um that was a nation that um i mean i think you could say to a fairly significant degree had rule of law but um it was not it was not by any stretch of the imagination a, a just order um i mean this is, this is actually one of the one of the, the the ironies i find with a lot of evangelicals is that they they will go to those texts in scripture romans 13 1 Peter 2 are kind of the classic examples that talk about the state and and about submitting yourself to to the authorities. And they they actually end up making almost the same argument that that the advocates for absolute monarchy made in in the Mm. past, um, sort of the divine right of kings arguments, which is the, the Bible says, submit to the governing authority always. And uh you, you can't ever um you can't ever resist that authority uh, and I was, i'm thinking this with with regard to these issues of rule of law is that the laws themselves as you said can be evil they can be unjust and uh and submitting to those laws just saying well you must always submit it's just it's ironic that it puts you, puts you in that same camp as as the, the those making the the argument for the divine right of kings and uh, something that uh Roger Scruton um really helped me see was was the idea of rights or law or anything like that? It it's only as it's only as uh, it's it's a protection only if there's power to enforce those laws um, and enforce justice. You know, like the, the the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, whatever is actually it's meaningless if you don't have the power behind it to actually enforce it justly. And, uh, and in this you know, particular instance, we can talk about, you know, the necessity of following the Constitution to a T, but if people are essentially using the wording of the Constitution to subvert the actual intent or to, um, to be unjust, you know, is it then our responsibility? Does it simply say, okay, it says it, uh, you know, rule of law, we must submit. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's a, an irony that I've, I've noted lately.
0: Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think that you and I are as, you know, two good magisterial Protestants. Um, we can see sort of a double justification for, uh, more energetic action by governors and state state governments. Because we have this lesser magistrate tradition, which I think you're touching on with with um, the the scripture references you just you just made there, yeah, which so essentially say you know lesser magistrates um, do have you know an independent duty owed to God uh, for for ruling justly, yeah, um, yeah. but that actually accords extremely well with um, a lot in the American political tradition. So federalism, right? We've got mm. we've got federalism. We've got the the Constitution that says the powers not given to the federal government are reserved by the states. It used to be quite commonplace to say the states reserved for themselves the police powers. The, 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 that's the bulk of uh, sovereignty in some ways, right? The the ability to pass laws on health, safety, and morals. That was all originally understood to be uh, substantive. Power that that was reserved by the states, not ceded to the federal government, as part of the federal bargain. Obviously, that's changed over time with the the Civil War and then the Fourteenth Amendment, and uh, mainly a lot of case law, I think, bad case law that was layered on top of the Fourteenth Amendment. But but uh, you know, so we've got that that tradition of federalism, and then we have this, um, I mean, in some ways, unresolved question in the American Constitution of departmentalism, which is the view that every different government official has an independent duty of constitutional fidelity. And this hasn't been tested often, but um, it has on occasion. Uh, Certainly presidents during wartime is when you see it most often. Um, They need to act quickly and decisively and the Supreme Court ends up uh, overruling them, but they basically just disregard the Supreme Court because they're in an emergency situation. Um, But, you know, the the uh, the question of whether the the Supreme Court uh, gets final say on constitutional questions has always been a very contentious one. Um, Marbury versus Madison, which every kid learns in civics class, notwithstanding, um, you know it's not at all it's not at all obvious um, what the check is supposed to be on a Supreme Court that gets really aggressive that gets out over its skis or starts, um, you know, aggrandizing its own jurisdiction, if it starts speaking to political issues that it really, that don't properly belong within its jurisdiction, um, it's, it's not at all obvious from the internal logic of our constitution that the Supreme Court must be, um, followed in cases like that. So, you know, if you think of Obergefell or for that matter, even Roe, um, you know, why in from the internal logic of the Constitution, it's actually difficult to articulate a case for why, um, you know, states ha- are, are technically bound by those rulings. Um, now, that being said, I mean, there's plenty of you might come up with prudential reasons for why states um, would not oppose them. And that, that but that's a different discussion. Um you know, and then there's certainly layers of tradition or, you know, sort of shared practice and understanding of, of judicial supremacy uh, that, that might bind a state's action. But all of this to say, um, both from the Protestant tradition and then the American political tradition, there's ample support for the idea that, that a governor might um, get more aggressive on on extradition going forward. And, you know, to be clear, I, I mean, a lot of this isn't even this isn't necessarily like a, a constitutional crisis or anything like that. I mean, part of this is just ordinary course. Governors are aggressive about a certain interpretation under the Constitution, and then it has to get litigated through the court process, right? right? We're not even saying we're not even saying here that DeSantis should litigate it up to the Supreme Court and then disregard the Supreme Court if he doesn't get the result he likes. We're we're really in the first sense, you know, I think I would say. Um, if, if there indeed there is an attempt to arrest Trump DeSantis should resist that extradition and take it to the Supreme Court yeah it's, um, it, this isn't uh,
1: this isn't firing on Fort Sumter um, it, people no. might, might think uh, they might think that uh, any resistance is is um, nothing short of starting a civil war when that's actually how our legal system works you you, you can resist certain things and then they're going to get litigated and they're going to move up um,
0: throughout, that's actually still working within the system. Um, yeah, and, and and my guess would be um, if that were to happen, the Supreme Court would likely find a way to, uh, you know, Judge Roberts the way he thinks and operates. I'm I'm very confident if this issue got into the Supreme Court, uh, the court would find an elegant way to. Not answer the issue, uh, probably not force extradition, but also not give a lot of a clear ruling that would, you know, uh, shape future action. Um, but look, I mean, bottom line, whether it's the Trump extradition is is like the first salvo in this discussion, but extradition is going to be a hot issue with both abortion and then with uh, transgendered stuff, and it's going to happen on both sides. I mean, you could easily see a case where Texas demands extradition say, you know, say an uh, abortion is running an illegal clinic in Texas and flees the state and Texas wants to extradite them back to Texas. Um, th- this could happen kind of both ways. And I think uh, if you're, if you're putting money down, I would, I would just bet that there's going to be a breakdown in the, um, you know, extradition used to be a pretty much rubber stamp process. And I think, I think we're, I think we're likely to start coming to the end of that arrangement. Yeah,
1: I, mean, I think I think for evangelicals that are that are troubled by the idea that a governor could could uh, resist extradition or something like that, and I'm, I'm not saying that that's even necessarily the right um, thing to do, but let's just say in general, if they're troubled by that, you, you mentioned um, that this has. Uh, we, we have a tradition in, in, in Protestant political thinking uh, about this, and it comes from texts like First Peter 2. We, we know the first part. I think that's what evangelicals tend to, to think of. First, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And they take that as if that's just an, an absolute statement that must occur across the board at all times. Um, but then Peter continues, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And even there, you can say, well, okay, the the emperor sends the governor to do what is right and wrong. And so he still has to submit. But the the thing they can miss is that both the emperor and the governor are are being told what they are supposed to do, what they must do. Mm. And that is that they must uh, commend those who do right, and they must punish those who do wrong. That's their mandate. This is not a text that tells us what always happens. And even, even worse interpretation is that this is a text that says that you must submit always because no matter what the governing authority does from the biblical standpoint, that's right. You know, that's, that is the argument of of those who would, who would argue for the divine right of kings, uh, the absolute authority of kings. And then again, ironically, all of these evangelicals make the exact same argument. They make it about COVID regulations, all these other things. Um, as if what Peter or what Paul is saying is that, um, that you as a Christian must always submit to the governing authority because they can never do anything wrong, when in fact, they're being given their mandate. This is what they must do. And governors, in, in Peter's instance, Paul doesn't say this, but Peter adds that governors are also themselves to, to, do, to commend those who do what is right and to punish those who do what is wrong. And that means that lesser governing officials have an independent duty to do what is right. Um, to commend those who do what is right, to punish those who do what is wrong. Uh, we could say uh, that. And
0: when but, we say independent, maybe maybe it's good to just sort of explain that. But I mean, essentially, what we mean by that is, it's not if you're a governor, uh, you know, you can't outsource the moral judgments to you know folks who are theoretically higher on a governmental hierarchy than you. Right. Like you can't you can't throw up your hands and say well you know, the president said to do X, Y, and Z. And so I did it. And my own views on the morality of that action are irrelevant. Like, you have an independent duty to God to believe that what you are doing is, um, is just. Is that, is that fair?
1: No, I think that's fair. And and, and people might jump instantly and think, well, is that just going to create anarchy, where the the, the lesser officials just decide, you know, on everything? Oh, I, I don't like this. I like this. You know, that's, that's not that's not what Peter's saying. Um, th- that that's not the point. The point is that all governing officials have a mandate from God to pursue justice, genuine justice. And like you said, they can't. They can't. They can't do something that is e- genuinely evil and unjust simply because someone above them has told them to do that. We, we, I mean, we all know this. I mean, everyone knows this. Right or left, everyone knows this when it's their own issue. You know, the left is going to say that about abortion and and protecting uh, transgender uh, surgery. Um, you know, parents who 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 have mm-hmm. that done on their children, the left's going to say that. I think most people would recognize that with regard to slavery and, and runaway slaves. So when the issue is right, people instinctively get this. Um, it's just that. Uh, at other times, they they seem to, for some reason, not understand this. Um, but yeah, no, I think you're right, and and you 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 already brought up the fact that this actually fits well with America's own system of
0: of government, uh, departmentalism. You were you were talking about that earlier, and I should say, departmentalism is not like that's not a universally held theory, but it's it's essentially the alternative to judicial supremacy. Hmm. Uh, and uh, it's just been a live, ongoing debate throughout American constitutional history that's never been definitively resolved. Right. Um, so. Yeah. So I guess even independent
1: of that, that um, specific theory, it's I think it's still something that that people instinctively realize on certain issues. Um,
0: and and, um, and I might step back, and what, what I might say is the Supreme Court. You know, our founders wanted checks and balances. And if you believe in judicial supremacy, it's initially sort of tough to see, well, what's the check on the Supreme Court then? If they get to, if they get to overrule the other two branches, how is their power functionally uh, checked? And this, I think, is a more universally accepted observation, but it's essentially this. Um, the Supreme Court is checked by credible threats of noncompliance with its rulings. And that's that both, that, that both applies to the federal level and to the state level. So, you know, the, the, if the Supreme court really gets out over its skis, if it aggrandizes its jurisdiction, makes rulings that are not, um, that don't accord generally with the political will of the people, um, the Supreme court really risks being ignored. Uh, this happened sort of famously with the trail of tears, uh, where, you know, the, uh, You know the supreme court ruled that that the state of georgia could not remove the cherokees um and uh you know the governor of uh the governor of georgia and you know and andrew jackson uh andrew jackson opposed the ruling and and i think it was the governor of georgia who said you know the supreme court has made their ruling now let them enforce it (laughs) right and uh you know the supreme court does not have an army the president has an army and so the 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 one of the checks on the Supreme Court's uh, supremacy is simply the fact that if it really gets if it really rules in a way that's contradictory to the political will of the nation it will be disregarded and if it's disregarded it continues to lose power As our nation gets more divided, not too dissimilar from the you know 1830s and 40s, um, you know the Supreme Court, Will likely get more cautious about weighing into political issues whatsoever it will find ways to not rule on contentious political issues um, you know because if it does, if it steps in on one side or the other, the likelihood of it being disregarded increases, which then you know reduces the supreme Court's legitimacy yeah and
1: it's i mean it's um it's a sad reality that we're we're probably going to see more and more of this, where it's it's politicized um, trials and and uh, and things like that. There's um there's a great uh, quote. Um, I'm not sure if I can uh, remember exactly where it is, but it's in in Tocqueville, um, where uh, actually no, I, I found it. Um, in Democracy in America, he says, I think it will be easy to recognize when the American republics begin to de- degenerate, it will suffice to see whether the number of political judgments increases. And what he means by political judgments is impeachment proceedings and, and essentially using, um, using either impeachment or um, criminal trial in order to uh, go after your political enemies Uh, I I found that to be, um, pretty prescient. Um, and, and
0: that, that is, that's a fantastic quote. I I would even, I would even say, um, I mean, I'm I'm not sure if he meant it in context, but I would even just say when you're going to, when you're going to your Supreme court for political questions, you're in trouble. Um, you know, the, the, uh, which, I, I mean, obviously that's happened, right? I mean, uh, uh, Proposition Eight in California in 2008, uh, they outlawed same-sex marriage and raced off to federal court uh, immediately after that. And then, you know, leading up to Obergefell, like those were Obergefell Roe. Those those were those were fundamentally political decisions, and the Supreme Court stepped into that sphere. And I think both um, very early warning signs uh, on the health of our republic. Yeah, I mean,
1: th- this is what has historically distinguished America from all of these failed democracies. You, know, you think of just um, the many failed democracies that that have arisen in South America, um, and what what is what is the difference between the two? The the form of government is often almost identical with ours, um, and yet what you see over and over and over is that people are using the courts to take their enemies down and, um, and they're, not, they're not dealing with things in the political realm. And that, that's, I think, historically what made America so successful and unique is that wasn't the case, but it's, it's very concerning that that seems more and more to be the case uh, these days. I think um, I think Tocqueville was, uh, was certainly on to something, as he often was, kind of seeing where things might be headed or, or at least warning about where they could go.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I think it, it, uh, for, for civic minded Christians who are thinking about the future of our country and politics, I think it raises, um, I think it raises really complicated questions about, well, where do we go from here? You know, um, do we, uh, you know, do we fight for the vestiges of Republican norms? Uh, or do we, um, you know, do we kind of uh, lean into to accruing power and, and focusing on the our ability to have substantive justice in places where we have political control? Um, and and you know that that's a complicated question. There's a lot to talk about there, but uh, you know, yeah, I uh, think we'll, we'll
1: I, I think, yeah, that, I mean, that'll be that'll be good topic for for future podcasts. And um, and even even if it's the case that we want to say. Um, substantive due process, um, um, uh, uh, rule of law, um, things like that, Um, and not substantive due process, uh, just just rule of law. If if we want to insist on, on things like that, we might have to shore things up first, right? If things have so degenerated that rule of law will actually be used to enforce injustice in our country, you've got to deal with that. You've got to fix that. Before you can start talking about uh, rule of law in the way we used to, and maybe that means that we we, we want to get back to that, but we've got to deal with reality in the meantime before we can even get back to that
0: yeah I our land is planted to go back to to um, Thomas Moore's you know idea our law is planted thick with uh, with a lot of evil laws today yeah. And, we need to chop them down uh so yep well, well good
1: um i think this is a, probably a, a good place to call it a day and um yeah. bringing up all sorts of things for us to talk about in the future absolutely thank you ben yep all right yeah. josh thank you everyone Take for listening
0: care. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at americanreformer.org. That's americanreformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at amreformer.